Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me by turning to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. This morning, we're studying Philippians 3, verses 1 to 3. And our message is titled, How Gladness in God Guards Our Faith. The further I get from my high school years, the more honest I am about my athletic abilities, or lack thereof. While I always had the most heart on the court, I unfortunately lacked the talent to be good enough to play. But from a young age, I loved basketball. In the eighth grade, I was promoted from water boy to the third string and was handed one of the only remaining jerseys left in the box. Now, if you would have asked me then, in eighth grade, if you would have asked eighth grade Matt, what my game was most like, whose my game was most like, I would have said Allen Iverson. So I deserve the number three. But my coach didn't share the same thoughts, so he handed me the number 40. Now, who wears the number 40 in basketball? No one. Nobody wears the number 40. I can't think of a single player, Grady, uh, an, an analyst in, in, in sports and basketball is shaking his head. He can't think of anybody who wears the number 40. Now, during one home game, the opposing team's fans were sitting under our basket as we were doing warm-ups, and they wrote a chant just for me. Shorty 40. All practice long. Now, what I see now as heckling, I saw then as flirting. But friends, listen, if I was good at anything in basketball, I was great at guarding. I knew my assignment. Get your bottom low, your hands high, and your eyes on the player. Though I was small, pound for pound, I could defend with the best of them. But basketball is not the only context where good defense is necessary. Did you know that you need to guard your faith? Did you know that you need to guard your faith? Now, with our faith, we're not guarding it, but we're guarding against things that come against it. Now, how do we do that? What posture are we supposed to take to be successful? Is there any teaching or coaching in the Bible that prepares us for our opponent? Well, our text this morning does just that. In fact... Paul tells us how to guard our faith against opponents by teaching us that gladness in God's gospel guards us against false gospels. Now, isn't that surprising? Gladness in God's gospel guards us against false gospels. Isn't that surprising? I found it surprising. He doesn't say pray for more brain power. He doesn't say give more money and be more blessed. 
He doesn't say sacrifice more of your time. He says our gladness in God's gospel guards us against believing false gospels. And our goal for the next half hour is to wrestle with unpacking this truth from Scripture and applying it to our lives. So let's start now by turning our attention to what is undoubtedly the best part of this morning's message, and that is the reading of God's Word. Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let's go to the Lord quickly in prayer to ask for his help. Lord, we just want to ask you by faith to please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word for this next half hour. In Christ's name, amen. Our first point is this. A good defense is the best offense. Verse 1. Alistair Begg often says this. The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. Now, what's both plain and main in Paul's message to the Philippians is joy. He has been driving that nail throughout the entire book, and he will do so again in chapter 4. Paul references joy or rejoice in the Lord 16 times throughout this short letter to the Philippians. For Paul... This is not just a slogan of Christian living. It's not a social media hashtag. Hashtag joyful living, Philippians. It's of vital importance for spiritual vitality. So before he launches into an appeal for them to look out for opponents of the gospel, he instructs them first to look to the Lord for reasons to rejoice. Finally, he says in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. In just a moment, he's going to tell us why we should be rejoicing in the Lord, but, but now I have a question for us. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Of all the things that Paul could have said here, he said, Rejoice in the Lord. He could have said, finally, fear the Lord. Finally, obey the Lord. Finally, trust the Lord. But he didn't. He didn't say those phrases, and I want to know why. Why did he choose this phrase? I don't think that this was simply a matter of preference for Paul. It's not because he had a theme rolling in chapter 1 that he thought, well, I'm obligated to keep it rolling in chapter 2 and chapter 3. No, this isn't a matter of preference for Paul. Instead, this is a matter of strategy. Listen, 
If we wake up in the morning and the first thing we do is we stare down our spiritual enemies, then we will fight in our own strength and we will fail. But if we start the day by looking up to what God has accomplished for us in Christ, then the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. Think about this. You have opposition against your soul every day. There's a fight for your affections and there is a fight for your allegiance each and every day. For some people, it's a fight against drug or alcohol abuse. For others, it's, abu- it's viewing pornography, anger, laziness, experiencing depression. If our first step when we roll out of the bed every morning is to stare down those spiritual enemies, to stare down those temptations, then we will be fighting in our own strength. But if we wake up and begin rejoicing in the Lord, not only does God receive the glory He deserves, but we are equipped to see life as we should see it, as it really is. If we are busy joying in Jesus by thanking Him for the cross, thanking Him for forgiving us of our sins, thanking Him for dying in our place and absorbing the judgment that we deserve, thanking Him for making us sons and daughters of God, thanking Him for the hope of eternal life that we have secured for us beyond the grave. Thanking Him for sending and sealing us with the Holy Spirit. Thanking Him for the family He has given us in the local church. If we are busy joying in Jesus, God will become our joy. When Jesus becomes our joy again and again, Each and every morning, our spiritual opponents are seriously weakened. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 says this, the joy of the Lord is your strength. What an incredible phrase. Biblical scholar Michael Reeves says this, most of our Christian problems and errors of thought come about precisely through forgetting or marginalizing Christ. Most of our Christian problems and errors of thought come about precisely through forgetting or marginalizing Christ. So Paul, not wanting that for the Philippians, not wanting that for living hope, strums this one note again. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. So, friend, let me ask you what does your rejoicing look like each day? Have you learned to make your soul happy in Christ each morning? What disciplines? 
have you developed to remind yourself of all that God has done for you in Christ? What disciplines have you developed to remind yourself every single morning what God has done for you in Christ? Well, friends, if you haven't developed any of these disciplines, please do so right away. Start simple. I have two recommendations for you. The first is this. Pray. Pray, Lord, open my eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Pray. Two, preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself. Talk to yourself. Remind yourself of all that God has done for you in Christ. Of all the fixed realities that Paul details for us. Over and over again in the book of Philippians, and the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, all that God has done for us in Christ. I love how Paul concludes this verse. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. You know, friends, we live in a time where everybody seems to want something new. Give me something fresh. Give me something that I haven't heard yet. Paul was never about that. He was never about that. He he had this one note. He had this one phrase. And he just wrote it over and over and over and over and over 16 times in this one tiny letter. Rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for him, he says. It's no trouble for me. Can't you imagine him writing that? This is no trouble for me. You may be annoyed by this. Okay, Paul, we get it. No, no trouble for me. It's safe for you. Isn't that interesting? What is that phrase all about? Safe for you? No trouble for me. Okay, Paul, we get that. But you have a benefit in this. As I'm reminding you over and over and over and over, there's something in it for you. Paul says it's safe you. Now, what in the world is that about? Well, this is what it's about. Gladness in God's gospel guards us against believing false gospels. One commentator says this, joy in Jesus serves as a shield against false teaching. It's really, really easy For the joy that we experience in our life to be dependent on the circumstances of our life. We should be like Paul, who one commentator says this, Paul's joy is bound up with the salvation of his soul, not the outcome of his trial. Paul's joy is bound up with the salvation of his soul. Not the outcome of his trial. I wonder, friend, where is your joy bound up? Leads to our second point this morning studying the opponents, verse 2. Now, one thing I'm discovering the older I get is that there is an ever increasing number of things that want to disrupt my rest. 
In the middle of the night, one of the dogs will start barking and wake us up. One of the children will start crying and wake us up. Or here's a new one that I experienced just this week. A muscle in my leg will start cramping and wake me up screaming, I've got a cramp. Well, the same is true for our Christian life. The enemy of our soul is seeking to disrupt our rest in Christ. So in verse 2, Paul calls for the church to what? Look out. Right at the start of verse 2, look out, Paul says. Look out for what? Look out for who, Paul? Who are we looking out for? Now this is a really interesting comment that Paul makes because up to this point... In the book of Philippians, he hasn't mentioned any false teaching or any false teachers. Until now, he has only addressed matters of unity and humility within this congregation. But now, in chapter 3, at least in this section, he's issuing a strong warning to look out for false teachers. The scholars say that this is likely a reference to the threat of the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of Jewish teachers that were prevalent in the first century who would go around preaching to Christian churches that they needed to be circumcised in order to be right with God. So Paul takes a moment and he calls them out. And the sharp language that he uses should be an indication of how severe this threat was, or how severe he anticipated this threat was. It was almost as if, as Paul made his way across the world, planting churches, Judaizers would follow him. And every time he planted a church and established a church built on grace, the finished work of Christ on the cross, that there is nothing that we bring to our own for our own right standing before God, but it's only in Christ and in Christ alone. Paul's building churches on that gospel message, and then he has to leave because he has to go plant another church, and he has to go plant another church. And as soon as he leaves, these Judaizers fill that vacuum. They come in, and they begin saying, listen, we're, we're Jewish teachers. We really know the book. You guys are almost there. You're not quite there, but you're almost There, what you're missing is this one work. It's one thing. You think you're right with God, but you're not right with God. Look, let me show you some text. You need to take the sign of circumcision to be right with God. And this is affecting churches after church after church that Paul's planting, but not Philippians. He says, look out. It's it's an anticipation, a warning of anticipation. They're coming. I know they're coming. You know why? Because they always follow. They always follow the work of the gospel. They always come in seeking to disrupt the work of grace. Sharp language. He says in verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs. What do dogs have anything to do with false teaching? Isn't it funny that in our context, this directive just goes right over our head. It makes no sense because 
we are a culture who love dogs. Most of us in this room have at least one dog as a pet. And if you have a dog as a pet, you know that dogs become like family members in your house. But this was unthinkable in the first century Jewish home. (laughs) The dogs in this context were not members of a Jewish member's household, but they were strays. They didn't have bowls of dog chow to eat out of every night, but they would wander the streets and search for scraps or anything else that they could find for a meal. And because, because they ate anything and everything, unlike the Jewish laws, they became the perfect symbol of something that was unclean. They lived without boundaries. They lived without rules. If it was edible, the dog would eat it. So Paul, ironically, calls these Jewish false teachers dogs. He uses their own language against them and says that it is not these Gentile Christians in the church in Philippi who are unclean, but they are the ones who are unclean. It's a reversal. It's brilliant. He goes on and says, look out for the evildoers. Whoa, what is... Paul doing here? Well, here he's providing us with the motive behind these teachers' actions, namely evil. He's interpreting for us. They may seem innocent, but here's what what they really are, evil. And Paul's intention is not to be harsh. He's not a bully. His intention is to be protective to protect God's church, to guard God's church, to lay his own body down in front of the church. He wants this church to be prepared so that if one of these false teachers ever strolled in in the front doors and started holding a private Bible study seeking to convince members of this false gospel, they could recognize the motive. The members could recognize the motive. Oh, that teaching. We know that teaching. You're a dog. You're an evildoer. Paul tells us here that these teachers of false gospels are not innocent and ignorant friends, but opponents who should be avoided. But then he goes on and says, Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now his play on words again here is genius. These teachers are calling for the circumcision of the flesh, but Paul says that their religious symbol is more in line with mutilation than devotion, than godly devotion. Now in our context, we might hear this and snicker. And laugh. Who in their right mind would think that in order to be saved, one must be circumcised? I mean, in our day, we think that's laughable. If somebody came up to us and said, hey, you're really missing out. 
this one thing you lack is, is to be circumcised. We, we laughed him out of the room. Like, what are you talking about? We know the gospel. We know grace. We know there's nothing that can be added to earn our favor before God. But listen, friends, false gospels are just as prevalent in our day as they ever were in the first century. When we leave today, we probably won't have someone say that we need to be circumcised, but there is a great chance that we'll encounter some other messages. So what other false gospels are present in our day? Well, these gospels are no, certainly not good news at all, but we're likely to encounter these things. One, the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is thriving all over the world. Its subtle message says, come to Jesus and he will make you happy, healthy, and prosperous. It's not about forgiveness of sins, this gospel. It's about living your best life now. Another gospel that we might encounter is what I call the powerless gospel. This is the teaching that says, trust in Jesus, but don't worry about repentance. Don't worry about change. Take Jesus as your Savior, but there's really no mention of him as your Lord, as your Master, as your King. Someone who has bought into this gospel may use language like this. I was born this way, and this is the way God made me, even if it seems to be contrary to his word. Third false gospel is this, the self-help gospel. This is a message that we're constantly hearing in our culture. It says, come to Jesus and he will help you get where you want to go. This gospel is idolatry. It takes Jesus not for who he is and what he's done for us on the cross, but instead it it takes Jesus for what he can do to help me in this life. And when our expectations are not met, when we try it and it fails, we find ourselves ready to leave him because we never really wanted him for the cross. We wanted him for us. The fourth is this, the political gospel. This is one that's sold to us every, all, every four years. It says to us, find your hope in a political candidate. Find your hope in a political party. And this fifth fifth one is a works-based gospel. This is the message that was packaged by the Judaizers in the first century. And we've already established that the requirements of the Judaizers has changed but its message still affects millions of people. As humans, we sort of have an innate desperation to contribute something to our salvation. We want to be able to say to ourselves and to someone that we've done something 
to earn God's favor, that we are candidates that God certainly chose because we, we presented ourselves as people who are worthy to be chosen. We're just a little bit more shiny than other people in the world. And that's why he chose us. We want to say that we, we are people who pray enough. Maybe that's why God chose me, because I pray enough. Or, or that I sacrifice enough. I just give and I give and I give and I give. And I don't expect anything in return. That's why he loves me. Or that I give of my money. I give all that I can. I write checks. Workspace gospel. But the gospel, God's gospel says, your good works cannot and will not earn God's favor. God's favor was won for you by Christ's death on the cross. The finished work of Christ on the cross. I think we do this with our quiet times. We have a works-based salvation even with our quiet times. If I don't spend this much amount of time with the Lord, then I'm not worthy to really talk about Him today. I'm not worthy to be an ambassador for Him because I, I haven't really done enough. My question might take... Now, this is works-based salvation. What we live in, brothers and sisters, is a world of grace in God. That He receives us in grace. Un- Listen, definition of grace, undeserved favor. You just can't ever deserve it. You can never earn it. You can never put yourself in a position where just even for a moment, even for just a sliver of a millisecond, where you're like, I earned it just in that millisecond. I may have 90 years, but in that millisecond, I earned it. No, there's not even a millisecond of our life where we earn the favor of God. It's given to us in Christ. The love of God, the favor of God, the welcome of God, the forgiveness of God, the reception of God, it's all given to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So Paul says this. He says to Philippians, he says to us, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Friends, if we aren't to put our confidence in these things, where should we put it? Well, that's the focus of our next point, our third point, knowing our identity. Verse 3. Every good sports team must know their identity. Are they a strong defensive team? Are they a, a team with strong offensive firepower? Whatever it is, the team must not forget it or they will begin to lose games. And in the Christian life, we must not lose sight of our identity in Christ or we could find ourselves believing false gospels. So Paul reminds us of our identity. where our identity should be found. He says this in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Listen, do you see what Paul's saying here? 
He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel to this church. He's preaching the gospel to himself. He's saying to the church that our identity is, it must be rooted in the gospel, the finished work of Christ, the gospel message of God's love towards us in Christ. It's the message of him sending and sacrificing his own son on the cross so that we could be forgiven, that we could be made right with God, that we could be adopted as sons and daughters of God, that we, that we would be sealed and filled with the Holy Spirit, that we would receive the promised eternal life. This message is our identity as a church. It's the greatest message in the world. It's the greatest message in the world. Friend, do you hear it this morning? It's the greatest message in the world. The news of what God has done for you in Christ. May, may we never be a people who are ready to move on from this news, who are ready to find the newest, okay, let's find a new spiritual teaching, something more sparkly. Now, friends, we've got to be like Paul. He lived his life under the cross of Christ from beginning to end. He tied himself, he tethered himself to the cross. If he ventured too far, he would come back. It has to be the cross of Christ that grounds us. It has to be the gospel that brings us satisfying joy. It's the greatest message in the world. So Paul says, who are the ones who were made right with God? Who are the ones who are truly worshiping God? He says, it is those who glory, in other words, who worship Christ Jesus. It is those who put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, it is those who put zero stock into their own works of righteousness as means of right standing before God. But those who are right with God are those who are radically reliant on Christ Jesus alone for the righteousness. I think this quote from Alistair Begg really helps us to understand Paul's point in this last section. Alistair Begg says this. He says, without the preaching of the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and were to and, to, and were to get entry into heaven, what would you say? If we answer that in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believe, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is the third person, because he, because he. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, and I will find myself beginning to trust myself, to trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as, as a man. 
If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you to either abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. And it is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretensions of arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out. I'm doing wonderfully well. No. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Friends, are you prepared to play defense today? Are you prepared to play defense every day this week? Are you prepared to defend your faith against false gospels, against believing false gospels? The Lord says to us this morning that the way in which we do that this day and every day is by having gladness in God's gospel. It's by waking up in the morning and being glad in God's gospel. Because this will guard us against all kinds of false teaching. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you so much for the gospel, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that our identity is not found in our performance, not found in our future successes. It's not found in our previous failures. It's not found in the work of our hands. It's not found in the accomplishments, the checking of boxes. Our identity, you call for us. At least you call for it to be. I hope it is. Oh, you call for our identity to be in Christ, to be in the gospel, to be in the finished work of Christ on the cross, that we are sons and daughters of you, that we have the Spirit, that we have the Spirit as a seal, that we are filled with the Spirit, that we have the church as a family, that we have been declared righteous before you, that we... That our greatest problem, namely our, our sin against you, has been, has been dealt with by the cross, by Christ and the cross. So God, that's a really hard thing to make our identity because we want to make our identity what people think about us, how successful we are, what we do, what we accomplish. But God, would you give us the grace this morning to repent of that, to make the gospel, our identity. 